0: Welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, May 21st at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Margot Sanger Katz, The New York Times. Good morning. Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Hello. And Kimberly Leonard of Business Insider. Hi, everyone. So, let us talk about reopening the economy since that seems to be the uh, topic of the week. As of this morning, I think at least part of every state, although not the District of Columbia and not the county I live in in Maryland, where the caseload is still going up, are at some stage of loosening the stay-at-home orders. And so far, it appears there's no big surge of cases, even in places like Georgia and Florida, parts of which reopened a couple of weeks ago, and where there's been lots of video of people not following public health advice about social distancing and other things. There are a couple of possibilities here. I think one is that things are okay. One is that things aren't okay, but it's too soon to see spikes in things like hospitalizations and deaths, which are lagging indicators. But a third possibility is that things aren't going so well and states are playing with the numbers. And I'm not just making that up. It's been directly accused. The Florida Health Department official who was running the state's data dashboard was fired earlier this week. She says it was because she refused to, quote, manually change data to drum up support for the plan to reopen. Republican Governor DeSantis has denied that. Meanwhile, George released a chart showing caseloads in descending order, except the chart wasn't chronological. I get that everyone is anxious to reopen, but it's not just that we're flying blind here. It sounds like there are active efforts to manipulate the numbers, right? So another trick uh, states and according to a
1: new report, the federal government is also pulling is combining two different kinds of tests to mixing them together and reporting those results in an extremely misleading way so they're combining diagnostic tests which is whether people have the virus right now and antibody tests which is whether they've ever had it and their body has produced antibodies and those tests have very inaccurate results sometimes and combining the two types of tests is producing data that is not reliable. So that is yet another trick that some states and the federal government have used to um, paint a rosier picture than might
0: be the case. Margo, you've been sort of deep into the whole data production there over at the Upshot. Um, It's really hard to know, how things are going, right? I mean, I live in Maryland, which has done a pretty good job putting out numbers, but they're not, they're they're just sort of give us point in time numbers. You can't really tell anything from the numbers that they've been giving us. Yeah. So, I mean, you guys have talked a lot over the last few weeks on the
2: podcast about this, about how there really aren't enough tests. They aren't easy enough to access. And so, the result is that we know there are a lot of people who have coronavirus who have no symptoms, who wouldn't be seeking a test under this uh, scenario. And there are also a lot of people even who do have symptoms who just never get a test. They stay at home, they take care of themselves. So we don't have perfect surveillance of how many people have this virus. We also know, we can see from reporting that we've done, that it appears that there's really even an undercounting on deaths. So you would think that, um, you know, if you Are just looking at all the people who have died, it would be easy to tell who had coronavirus and who didn't. But I think those people also, especially if they don't die in a hospital, might not get a test. So we don't really know. So I do think that there are a lot of problems with the kind of quality and completeness of the data that we have. On the other hand, I do think it's getting better. We're seeing there's more testing than there was before. Um, And I think we have to take seriously the possibility that there really have been kind of Slow and smaller increases in these states that have reopened than many epidemiologists expected. Um, There are certain things that would be really hard to miss. I mean, we saw, for example, when the outbreak was really hot in New York City, that hospital capacity became an issue very quickly, right? You know, lots of people were sick enough to need a hospital bed and they had to expand into new facilities. They had to cancel a lot of other kinds of procedures. And that was not just prophylactic. I mean, that was in order to make way for all of these sick patients. And again, in New York, we saw just really tremendous increases in the number of people dying, so large that even if none of them had been diagnosed as having had coronavirus, we could just see that thousands and thousands more people were dying in March and April in New York than in a normal March or April. So those are the kinds of signs that I think are really hard to miss. They're not as precise as having really good case numbers or really good deaths from coronavirus numbers, but we don't even see those kind of gross signs uh, in some of these reopening states. The number of hospitalizations maybe are going up a little bit. Uh, the number of deaths are maybe going up a little bit. But it does seem like we all need to be open to the possibility that there isn't going to be a raging outbreak in Georgia right away.
0: And I, I mean, I guess part of the concern is if there isn't something right away, that the fact that they're sort of reopened and people aren't being maybe as careful as they should means if there is something, it could balloon up really fast.
1: Yeah. But alternatively, I think there are a lot of reports about people going out in droves and you know this pent up demand to socialize and and go out to restaurants and other businesses but i think that people are still quite scared and so i think despite those sort of anecdotal reports on the whole people are still being more cautious and staying home and i think that could also contribute to the lower numbers we're seeing although like you said it could be too early to tell given that you know the incubation period for the virus could last a couple weeks. And so since the states just reopened a couple weeks ago, it'll take lag time to see the cases go up, even more lag time to see hospitalizations go up and even more lag time to see deaths go up. Kimberly, you were about to say
0: something.
3: Yes, I was going to say one thing that the shutdown allowed for as well was for hospitals to really start to gear up for a potential surge in cases. So even if you see a surge later, you will end up with hospital capacity that's more prepared. They've had some time to observe, you know, what other hospitals have done. They've sort of increased their ICU units in case um, they see that surge. So even if you end up seeing a higher number of cases, you have that preparation time that was allowed
0: that you. You know, wouldn't have been there otherwise which was the whole point after all of the shutdown i also so, I, I mean which and which is oh i ahead, was Margaret. just going to piggyback on something alice said which
2: is that i think we also have to be careful to distinguish between what is the legal regime what is the state allowing people to do and then what kinds of activities people are actually doing in these places and so um, it may be that the most important thing is not is it legal for you to go Get a haircut, or go to a restaurant, or a park. Uh, but instead, you know, what is your, what do you feel comfortable doing, and how many people are doing those things, and what kinds of precautions are they taking when they do it? Is your hairdresser wearing a mask? That might be different than if they are not. And uh, you know, a lot of these public health messages may have permeated broadly enough that it is okay to lift some sanctions in some places and let people make judgments. Again, I think all of the epidemiology suggests that it is risky at this time for states to be lifting these kinds of restrictions. And I think all of the indicators that we've talked about do lag somewhat. And so it's possible that there are big outbreaks yet to come. But, um, you know, the human behavior matters much more than what the law is. And I think that's something that we're seeing from a variety of sources that people are continuing to
0: stay inside. Yeah, there there was an NPR poll that came out I think just last night that said I think it's like the the percentage of people who you know who think that they that they that this is going to be the new normal for at least six months is like seventy five percent. I mean it's just you know I think most we keep seeing these videos of you know people sort of flaunting public health advice, but then you look at polls and you realize that they are definitely in the minority that most people are still staying. At least careful if not hunkered down. Um well so we're while we're not really sure what's happening in the states. We are definitely seeing the federal government seemingly pulling back from overseeing the response to the virus. Um, Now we hear the federal government is going to put a hard stop in June to its funding of state National Guard units that are providing help with testing and contact tracing and running food banks and other critical services. Alice, you had a scoop on this, and I understand there's an update. So tell us what you found and what happened. Yes.
1: So uh, after our report came out earlier this week that the Trump administration was planning to end the federal deployment of the National Guard for coronavirus relief efforts. They're in almost every state running testing, cleaning nursing homes, doing contact tracing, delivering food to food banks, all kinds of really necessary services. And that hard stop was set to come on June 24, which is a very odd, random Wednesday in the middle of the week, in the middle of the month. Um, and we found out it would have. Landed just before thousands of Guard members qualified for certain federal benefits. Now, after. So the 89th exactly. day of their 90 day. Exactly. And so after our report, members of Congress have been writing to the Trump administration saying, this is terrible, you need to extend it. Lawmakers, state officials, governors, and introducing bills to address it. And after all that happened, we heard from sources that there are plans being drafted to extend the deployment to the end of July. But we don't yet know if President Trump will sign those plans.
0: I saw news reports that, that the administration has agreed to extend this. And it's not just because they got shamed, but it's also apparently because the states say they still need the National Guard oh, absolutely. units
1: And I mean, even if they do extend to the end of July, I think it's still going to be an issue then because states are going to need to do testing, contact tracing, all of these things for a long time to come,
0: even more as states reopen. Well, I want to talk about the CDC because we haven't heard much from the CDC um, after there there were some guidelines that we talked about last week and they were delayed because the White House deemed them overly prescriptive. Um, but we finally got the guidelines this week about how to safely reopen everything from daycare centers to restaurants to buses and subways, um, albeit a couple of weeks after we just said a lot of places are al- already reopening. Um, what do we make of what the guidelines say now and are people going to pay attention to them or are people going to sort of do their own thing?
1: Well, there certainly hasn't been a lot of effort to promote these publicly. The CDC, you know, posted the detailed guidelines, uh, very quietly over the weekend on Sunday night. And this comes after they were shelved temporarily. The White House criticized them for being overly prescriptive and released much more sort of vague, you know, guidelines of of how to reopen. They're also coming after states have already begun to reopen. And some have really gone a lot of the way towards reopening. And so the, the timing also reduces their impact,
0: although the guidance on schools could still be influential in the fall. You know, this is my fourth or fifth pandemic or epidemic or serious public health outbreak. You know, obviously, I've gotten used to getting regular advice from and access to uh, officials at the CDC And yet in this outbreak, we heard from the the very beginning, and we've talked about this before, there's been basically not a peep. Now, of course, um, you know, Director Redfield is himself on a two-week isolation after having been, uh, self-quarantined after having been exposed to uh, aid in the White House who tested positive. But the CDC is a really big place. He's not the only person. Um, is. How long is it going to take to sort of win back trust in public health officials? I feel like that public health has just sort of taken a backseat, or at least we see a lot of public health officials, but not a lot of public health officials from the federal government.
3: Right. In the past, under previous outbreaks, reporters had, you know, regular access to top CDC officials. They could ask a lot of questions. The transcript would be posted later. It's been, I believe, since February Um, since we've had a call like that from the CDC. And you even have people within the Trump administration, within the White House, who've criticized the CDC. And so it's just a very different kind of collaboration than we have seen in the past. You know, instead, the White House was doing daily press conferences with the president and with some health officials. Dr. Tony Fauci has obviously been front and center on this, but it certainly is a different way. We've we've just seen the CDC communicate differently and, and be sort of receive less of a high profile than than in past outbreaks that that all of us have covered. Also, just to get to your
2: question, Julie, I think there are two kinds of trust. There's public trust in the CDC, and then there's trust from the White House. And I think a lot of what we're seeing right now is a result of the fact that the president doesn't really trust the CDC. He doesn't want to use them for advice, he doesn't want to use them for public communication, and he has instead established this coronavirus task force where he has a kind of uh, circle of people that he does trust for the most part and he does want to listen to. And that's why we've seen, like Dr. Deborah Burks has been a public health official who did not come from the CDC, but who has had a very large public platform, and um, also Dr. Fauci. Uh, is is another person who, you know, he's actually not a public health official, really. He's an infectious disease specialist. um, But he has really taken the public role of talking about these public health measures, because he's someone that is close to the White House. And you know, this is not unique to this outbreak. We've seen this a lot with the Trump administration, where the president just has people that he trusts and doesn't trust. And the people that are close to him tend to have a lot more influence over public policy and public communication.
0: I I was struck over the weekend, you know, when the administration fans out people to be on the Sunday talk shows and every single person that they that was on a talk show last week was an economic person with Secretary Mnuchin and Kevin Hassett. And, you know, they were they were basically there to talk about the economy and not about the public health um, part of this. And it, it really sort of shows I mean, it, it's. The White House has not been shy about saying that, you know, right now they're all about the economy and less about fighting the virus, sort of as if the two aren't inextricably linked. It makes me wonder, I mean, obviously the president is worried about his re-election, he's worried about the economy, but can you sort of put the, I mean, the fight against this, basically the public health fight against this on autopilot, that kind of seems to be what the administration is doing, isn't it? I'm waiting, everybody's shrugging. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we will we will move on. Um, so back at the White House, the president set off quite a stir with the revelation that he's taking the controversial drug hydroxychloroquine after being exposed to a COVID positive aid, notwithstanding that there's no evidence that it works as a preventive and little evidence that it works, period. Is there some reason he's doing this? Is he trying actively to sort of undermine science? Um, or does he just believe what his friends who he says he hears good things from tell him? Or I think probably most likely, is he trying to divert attention from everything else?
2: I heard this conspiracy theory that he's trying to divert attention from everything else. But the day that he made this announcement was actually a day when there was a lot of really good news that you would think he wouldn't want to distract from, including some early research suggesting that a Vaccine in the works is looking quite promising. So, I I don't think that there is an obvious uh, motive here of distraction so much as it just reflects, you know, the president's own fears of the virus and his confidence in this treatment, despite, I think, a very mixed scientific evidence about its efficacy. He released a letter from the White House doctor who said that, you know, they'd had a conversation in which they had discussed the risks and benefits of this drug and had decided that there was an appropriate balance. Um, It was interesting to me that the doctor's letter never actually said that the president was taking the drug.
0: That's right. There's been speculation that he's not even taking it, that he's just saying it.
2: Right. And I think a
1: lot of this related to, you know, he spent weeks and weeks hyping this drug at press conferences and in interviews and every chance he could get. And then the data started to roll out from some preliminary studies showing that not only was this not beneficial or there wasn't evidence that it was beneficial, but because of of side effects and interactions with other conditions, it was actually dangerous. So the guidance was that nobody take it outside of a clinical trial and. I think he got a lot of criticism for that. And so this claim that he is taking it now could be directed at image repair on that point.
0: When they were first talking about this drug, there was a run on it. And people who take it for conditions, you know, for the things for which it is approved for, including a lot of autoimmune diseases, couldn't get it. Um, People who have lupus and other diseases. And we're starting to see shortages again because people see the president taking it And they want to take it as a preventive and they're sort of, you know, snatching it all up. I mean, this has sort of public health implications of its own, right? Yeah, I mean, the yo-yo with this drug is really unfortunate
2: because there are people who do rely on it. And if they can't get the drug for a condition that it actually helps with because other people are stockpiling it, you know, just in case, that feels like it's sort of unfair. Um, I do think generally, you know, when you think about the president... Um, you know, there are a couple of aides in the White House who have tested positive for this virus. The White House is a very unusual office in that everyone who works there gets tested every day, that most of us don't have that luxury. That's part of why we aren't going into our offices at all. If we believe that the president is taking this drug, he is tested every day and knows he does not have COVID currently, um, he's taking it as a preventive. And again, I don't know the science is out, but I think it really shows us, you know, how when you feel like you are at risk, there are just very few tools that you have at your disposal. We have these kind of public health tools of social distancing, wearing masks, limiting your contact with other people. But if you are in an environment like the White House, say, or say a meatpacking plant or in a jail or someplace where you don't have the ability to stay away from other people easily, uh, there just aren't a lot of tools. And so, you know, the president has the ability to access any tool that he wants in a way that many of us do not. But I I do think that we should see his interest in taking this untested prophylactic drug as being an indication of, you know, how few tools there are to really prevent ourselves from getting this virus, and that, you know, his reaching for it is in some ways reflecting a kind of fear that a lot of Americans are feeling right now. I also
1: think it sends the message that he has sent in many other ways to his supporters that they should listen to him on all of these questions and not to public health experts. And when folks raised some of the studies around this drug being non-beneficial and potentially dangerous, he called the VA study, for instance, a phony study. And so dismissing these studies and putting himself forward
0: as the ultimate authority which is uh, clearly a pattern yeah Absolutely. Well, one of the things that actually would protect us all is a vaccine. Um, And the debate is already starting up, even before there is one, about who will get it first. And I'm talking about not just first here in the U.S., but first in the world, depending on who actually gets their vaccine up and ready to go first. Um, And if we have enough vaccine, apparently, as with testing, we may, may not have enough things like vials and syringes to make the rollout as rapid as we would like. Alice, your extra credit this week, is on this very subject. So why don't you go ahead and do that now? Sure. So I wanted to share
1: a piece by my coworker, Sarah Oramal, um, that is called Politics Could Dictate Who Gets a Coronavirus Vaccine. And it's looking at all of these issues, the, the supply shortages, the need to ramp up production and prepare for distribution on a mass scale before we even know if we have a safe and effective vaccine. And looking back at past efforts on this that were really problematic and troubled, including with the H1N1 uh, efforts where distribution to states was really uneven. Guidance for who should get it first was really uneven. In different states, you know, a child or a pregnant person or an old person got to be first in line. And it was just a real mess. And that mess could be even worse now because the science of coming up with a novel coronavirus vaccine is more difficult
0: than coming up with that vaccine, which was already extremely difficult it didn't occur to me that everybody thinks, okay, once we have a vaccine, everything will be be okay. But when you see how this is all gone so far, once we have a vaccine, we'll just have a different distribution problem.
3: Right, just there's a lot of concern that it would sort of be in some of the same issues that remdesivir had when the Trump administration tried to distribute that. You know, at Business Insider, we did a lot of reporting where we talked to hospitals and they kind of said, we don't know why we got this drug. And, um, you know, it wasn't the hardest hit hospitals. It was sort of spread out across different states and then different hospitals who were confused as to why they were participating. One hospital had said it, it had tried to participate in a clinical trial trial. But because of how that went, there's some concern that the coordination efforts of how to get this out would, would be similar.
1: Yes. And, and there are just looking, looking at both the rendesivir distribution, but also the early problems that haven't completely disappeared with acquiring and distributing uh, PPE, protective equipment to healthcare workers, and with testing. And there are fears that just like with testing, the wealthy and famous got to cut the line and have access that regular people couldn't have. And there are fears that that could also happen with a vaccine.
0: Well, while we are waiting for a vaccine, uh, it seems that while all of public health has been politicized in this pandemic, the wearing of masks has been politicized most of all. I get why mask wearing why I get why mask wearing is fraught for people of color particularly African American men but lots of white guys including apparently our commander in chief see it as some sort of challenge to their manhood might it ever be possible to make masks just another public health tool or do Americans just not ever want to be told to do anything that might be the least bit inconvenient
2: so there was recent polling on this that came out I think just yesterday from um, HuffPost published it. I don't know if they conducted the poll, but actually showed that a majority of Americans are like pretty okay with wearing masks. You know, there seems to be some partisan split where you see Republicans uh, less likely to report that they wear a mask themselves. But almost no one said that they thought that someone else wearing a mask was a bad thing. They thought it was a respectful thing or, you know, a generous thing to do. So I do think there is a real risk. It does seem like mask wearing is starting to split along partisan lines in a way that so much of everything else in our culture has become. Partisan, and so I think that's worrying because there's a lot of good evidence that mask wearing could really help slow the transmission of this disease. It's something that's very low tech and easy, all of us can do it. Uh, You don't have to worry about the federal government distributing this supply. You can use a sock, you can use a t shirt, you can, um, you know, use something that a friend of yours sewed, and it could help. Um, I think part of what is hard about the mask message is that early on the government said, Don't wear a mask, and then they came back and said, Actually, do wear a mask. And so I think it sort of led to some credibility
3: problems around how seriously people should take that recommendation. Right. I definitely agree that the messaging fed into some of the confusion that people have. I mean, we all have to, I think, continually remind our readers that this is still a new virus. We're learning more about it every day. Um, When it comes to mask wearing, I see different recommendations from experts about. Whether to wear them when you're jogging outside or whether to wear them when you're riding a bike. So, um, I do think that it causes a lot of confusion with the public. I think there's some sense that, okay, if I'm in a grocery store, it makes sense because I'm closer to people. But then, you know, when it comes to being outside, there is some evidence to suggest that it's harder to transmit the virus that way. But at the same time, you know, if you're walking down the street and someone's kind of on the sidewalk close to you, maybe the other person feels better if they see someone else wearing a mask. So, it's definitely something that that I think people are disagreeing on.
1: Oh, yeah, I just want to circling back to the messaging from the president. I think it's had a real impact that the president has refused to wear a mask one time in public, even when he's gone to visit sites where one is required. And every you see these photos and videos, everyone else around him, all of his top officials, all the people he's interacting with are wearing masks, and he will not. And I think that sends a real message to his supporters. But as Margot noted, polling shows that the people who are refusing to wear one, who feel that it is some sort of sign of weakness, they're a real minority, even if
0: they are loud right now. And they are very loud. And I, and I do. I mean, I think there there is this sort of continuing Frustration with the fact that recommendations do keep changing because scientists keep saying we're learning more about it every day. I mean, we just don't. It's very new. It's only been on the planet. At least it's only been in humans on the planet for six months. Um, And that's why you do science. And science sometimes will say, oh, we were wrong about this or, oh, it has changed or, oh, we think we've we've looked at more closely and we think this is safer. And I think I know that always frustrates people. I mean, it's frustrating Frustrated all of us with you know nutritional recommendations for years. You know, coffee is good, coffee is bad. Oat bran is good. Oat bran is maybe not so good. <laughs> Except generally, those things aren't things that can kill you right away. Um, and this potentially is. So I think some of it is just the the difficulty of people trusting science. And there's it's, some of it is you know on us in the media who have to be careful of, to not sort of overhype things. You try to put nuance and stuff and the nuance doesn't always come through, particularly in headlines. And I know that I try to sort of continually be sure to say that this is what scientists think now, and it could change. Um, and you sort of do the best you can with what you have. But I, I think it's, I mean, it's really hard. It's a really, it's a hard time to be a health writer. I'm sort of in awe of the, the real science writers who are trying to explain all this really complicated stuff that we are lucky enough not to have to do right now.
3: And journalists are also competing with social media messages that get posted and shared and go viral and, you know, videos that people post themselves bringing up issues that they see with the coronavirus reporting and all of that. And so sometimes, you know, people are sharing those messages instead of sharing news articles, instead of sharing advice from the same people that we report on.
0: Yeah, people do set themselves up as experts who don't really have credentials, and then that stuff gets shared, and it really doesn't help. Margaret, did you want to add something? Yeah, I
2: was just going to say, I also think mask wearing, like, has a huge social component in that, like, it is not normal in our society and our culture to wear a mask in public. If you go in some countries in Asia, you know, even before this disease, it was just kind of a norm, you know. If you go on an airplane, you wear a mask, um, you know, partially because those are places that have had previous disease outbreaks, partially because there's air pollution but we're not. We don't usually wear masks. It feels weird to wear a mask. I'm not used to it. It looks weird, or at least it did a few weeks ago when you would see someone wearing a mask. Like you know. Um. And so I think that a lot of mask wearing is going to reflect how normal it becomes in any one community. You know, I walk around in my neighborhood and everyone wears a mask. And so that makes me feel really comfortable wearing one. You're like, okay, this is something that these people are doing to keep me safe. I'm going to do it to keep them safe. And in places where there is more resistance, I wonder if what we'll see is not so much that there's like, you know, The majority of people might be wearing masks overall, but it might be that everyone in some places is wearing them and and almost no one in other places are. And of course, that really does affect the disease risk. But this is just I mean, it's a new practice um, and I think it's going to take a while to feel normal to people
0: i'm I'm waiting for masks to become like ball caps, which are you know you as a as a way to say something. We're already seeing lots <laughs> of sports teams doing their own face coverings, and I mean, I think that will really help. It's like you know you you can you can wear your baseball cap and your mask and a, and a cute mask a cute mask
1: definitely helps my my mom sewed me one it has
0: bicycles on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a friend from California who sewed me a corgi mask, so it is very cute. All right, well, that is all the time we have for the news this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the link to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Alice has already gone. Kimberly, why don't you tell us about yours?
3: Yes, I selected one from a giant newsroom project that we did at Business Insider called What's Next? We asked more than 200 CEOs how their businesses will be transformed by the COVID-19 pandemic. We, of course, interviewed CEOs across all different industries, but I wanted to particularly point out the ones on healthcare. We talked to different CEOs from health IT, major hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies about how the coronavirus pandemic has permanently changed healthcare. And we got some excellent really interesting, thoughtful ideas. I think everybody should go read that. Margot. I
2: wanted to recommend an article from a few weeks ago from Ed Young at The Atlantic called Why the Coronavirus is So Confusing. And it really circles back to the conversation that we were just having about the difficulty of talking about this virus in an environment in which so much remains unknown. Um, I think his piece does a really nice job of actually summarizing like what we do now or what we did know a couple of weeks ago about both the science and epidemiology of this disease, but there's a really nice chunk in there that I just keep thinking about and have thought about often in the week since that's about how do we communicate things that we're not sure about, and I think that's that's something that scientists are generally pretty good at, but then they end up seeming sort of mealy-mouthed and unsure in a way that is not reassuring. I think it's something that politicians are really bad at. Politicians are sort of trained to have really strong, definitive points of view about various matters of policy. And I think it's something that us as journalists, like, we struggle with all the time. We want to be clear. We want people to understand what we're telling them. We have a lot of pressure in some cases to make our stories be really sharp and provocative. And none of those norms are really a good match for an environment in which the stakes for being right are really high, but there's a lot that we don't know. And so I've just been thinking myself a lot about how I can be better in my own writing about being clear and giving people real information, but also communicating the areas in which there is uncertainty and where we should be humble about what we know and don't know. And I think it is just a huge challenge in reporting about this disease because the stakes are so high and the uncertainties
0: are so large. That was such a good story. And Ed Young is such a good reporter. And if you're not reading his stuff, you really should be. Um, My extra credit this week is also a newsroom project that Kaiser Health News is doing with The Guardian. It's called Lost on the Frontlines. The project aims to document the lives of healthcare workers, not just doctors and nurses, but everyone involved, even tangentially in patient care, who have died of COVID-19. It includes people like Alfredo Pabatao, a Filipino immigrant who worked as an orderly in a hospital in Hackensack, New Jersey for 20 years, and Nef Rios, an ICU nurse from Memphis, Tennessee, who relatives described as a gentle soul who loved people. It's a sobering and achingly sad series, but so important to honor the people who are risking and sometimes losing their lives in order to care for others. So on that somber note, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts we'd appreciate it if you left us a review that helps other people find us too special thanks as always to our intrepid producer francis ying who makes us all sound okay even if we are in different places also as always you can email us your comments or questions we're at what the health all one word at kff.org or you can tweet me i'm at j rovner at sanger Katz. at alice olstein at leonard kl we will be back in your feed next week In the meantime, be healthy.